Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 270, War in the Five Boroughs. This show is ad-free due to member support, and as a way of thanking members for keeping the show independent, I offer members-only content, including extra episodes and rough transcripts. You can get instant access to all the members' extras by signing up for membership at thebritishhistorypodcast.com for about the price of a latte per month. And thank you very much to Andrea, Henry, and Gregory for signing up already. There's an entry in the Irish fragmentary annals that caught my attention. It talks about the defeat of Hrold and Otter at the hands of Athelflaed, and it specifically gives credit to Athelflaed for this battle, and then goes on to say that following that victory, her fame spread in all directions. It's nice to have some further confirmation that Athelflaed wasn't just a noble, she was also a war leader. And considering that people were singing praise poems about her for centuries later, I suspect that the annals were right, and that her fame did spread in all directions. But the part of the entry that really stood out to me was what followed it. Quote, Athelflaed, through her own cleverness, made peace with the men of Alba and with the Britons, so that whenever the same race should come to attack her, they would rise to help her. If it were against them that they came, she would take arms with them, end quote. So the wording there is a little bit weird, but what they're talking about is forming a defensive military alliance against the Danes and it was formed with Alba and Britain, which were Scotland and Wales. But that brings up the issue of the political situation within Wales, and that, in particular, is a bit thorny for us. Mercia had been working for quite some time to establish and maintain overlordship over their western neighbors. It was a project that began under Athelred, Lord of Mercia, and it continued under Athelflaed, Lady of Mercia. And what makes this entry so interesting is that we're told that the Welsh made peace with the Mercians and agreed to this defensive arrangement, and that they did that due to Athelflaed's cleverness. So, was that all just a weird turn of phrase? Or were things not all that peaceful before Athelflaed came in and whipped out her cleverness? And for that matter, what was that cleverness? Well, that brings us to where we left off in the last episode, in 916, when Abbot Egbert and his companions had been killed in Wales. And in response, within three days of the abbot's death, Athelflaed had declared war on the southern Welsh. And while her brother was building a burr at Malden, she had launched an invasion. The target was Brekennan Mara, modern-day Hlangors Lake. And for the Mercian Register... This was the only event of note for 916. We aren't given any other details of what Athelflaed was up to. There's no construction. There's no marching around. There's simply this war. And that gives me the impression that it must have been rather involved because Athelflaed tended to be a rather energetic and active leader. But unfortunately, we aren't told much about how this war was carried out or precisely how it was ultimately resolved. All we're told is that the army of Mercia marched into Wales and, quote, destroyed Brecan and Mera and captured the king's wife and 33 other persons, end quote. Now that's a Spartan entry, but despite how Spartan it is, it still packs quite a punch. I mean, destroying towns, raising them, that's pretty rare in the record. Battles tended to be small, and they were often in the field, and even when towns did get involved, they were generally used as fortified positions, and then after the conflict, they went back to business as usual. 
But that's not what we're seeing here. Brakenanmera was destroyed. And the town itself must have been rather significant. I mean, it housed the king's wife and at least 33 other nobles. And probably more, since those were just the people who were captured by the Mercians. So this whole entry raises a lot of questions. Not the least of which is, who's the king's wife? And who is the king? And what happened to that king? And what precisely was he king over? Hell, you might also be wondering what happened with all those captives and whether they were used as bargaining chips. Unfortunately, our record fails us. It doesn't tell us anything else. Just that these highborn people were captured and that the town was destroyed. But what Athelflaed did here by destroying a town and taking a bunch of captives kind of reminded me of the kings of old, like King Athelfrith and the massacre of the monks at Bangersi Coed. What she did here was a shocking display of violence. And the fact that I have to think all the way back to Athelfrith for a good example of this, and Athelfrith was a king who ruled about 300 years earlier, well, that should tell you how rare this behavior had become. It's shocking to read that Athelflaed sacked a town. And consequently, I suspect that there is more going on here than we're being told. And I think a big part of what we're missing is probably a rebellion among some of the Welsh kingdoms, specifically against Mercian overlordship. I mean, think about what we've been seeing lately. Mercia was already engaged in a war with its Danish neighbors, its lord had died of illness recently, and it's been fending off invasion forces from the north, the south, and the east of its lands. Watching all of this from the outside could give you the impression that Mercia was overstretched, weak, and on the verge of another collapse, just like it had done under King Burgred. It very well might have looked like it was the perfect time to make a play for independence. Furthermore, Wales was undergoing a significant change in leadership. The sons of Rogery were now all dead, and in their place were a new crop of leaders. And new leaders often want to make their mark. You can imagine that Mercia's predicament might have looked like quite an opportunity for a young, ambitious king. So that's my guess as to what might have been happening in the margins. And then into that situation, we see Athelflaed militarizing her border with Wales in 915. And now in 916, she had a full army prepared for invasion within three days of Abbot Egbert's death. Meaning that within three days, she got word of that killing, she sent messengers to the various burrs about the killing and called up the Ferd, and then she waited for the various Ferd members to get equipped and make the long march to Tamworth, and then finally started her invasion. In three days. That feels a bit quick to me. Almost like she was waiting for this. And personally, I get the sense that Athelflaed was half expecting this to go bad. And it seems like she had already been dealing with some of the Welsh kingdoms bucking against her overlordship. Hence the militarization of her western border. So, being able to mobilize within three days of the killing suggests to me that she at least suspected that something like this would happen. And there's this little fact that the Chronicle throws in that I think might shed some light on all of this. Abbot Egbert was innocent, and he wasn't just killed himself, he was also killed along with his companions. And that makes me wonder if this might be a hint as to why she was so quick on the ball. The Chronicle doesn't say what a Mercian abbot and his companions were doing in southern Wales. But if things were getting rowdy in the south and Abbot Egbert was sent to calm things down, taking some companions as extra muscle might have been a good idea. And that could also explain 
why it wasn't just Egbert who got killed, but also all the people with him. And it could explain why Athelflaed seemed like she was ready to pounce as soon as she got word that Egbert was dead. Furthermore, all of this might explain Athelflaed's extreme reprisals in the West. Because if she was looking to maintain her grip on the kingdoms in the West, a brutal crackdown and the seizure of highborn hostages, in combination with a proliferation of strong points all along her border with Wales, might go a long way towards subduing any rebellious provinces. And here's the thing about what happened to the settlement at Langors Lake. It seemed to have worked. Because in an entry in the Chronicle two years later, we discover that Mercia had the submission of all of the kingdoms of Wales. So while we don't know precisely what the cleverness was that the Irish annals spoke of, it seems to have been quite effective. And considering the way she handled Brekenamera, it seems pretty clear that Athelflaed wasn't averse to using the stick when the carrot failed to work. And then, in the following year, with her western border subdued, Athelflaed returned to the main target of her ire, the Five Burrows. Early in the campaigning season of 917, Athelflaed gathered her forces and marched. But curiously, she wasn't headed to Leicester, despite the fact that it was the borough of Leicester that had been such a consistent adversary for her. Instead, she marched around that borough and advanced upon Derby, the Danish-occupied borough to the north of Leicester. And the Danes in Derby might have been wondering what they had done to invite such terrible luck. I mean, they hadn't been involved in any of the previous fights with Mercia. They'd just been hanging out, probably doing a bit of farming, and maybe taking a dip in the River Derwent when the weather was warm. But now, all of a sudden, there's this huge army of really pissed off looking Mercians marching through their lands. That's terrible luck. But it wasn't really luck that brought the Mercians to Derby. If you look at the placement of the five boroughs, you can see what Athelflaed was up to. She and Edward had been quite efficient at cutting off Leicester from many of its southern allies. Most recently, Bedford and Buckingham had come under Anglo-Saxon control. So now, the West Saxons and Mercians were pressing right up against Leicester's southern borders. All I had left in the south was, for the most part, Northampton. But, to the north of Leicester, within relatively close proximity, lie the boroughs of Derby and Nottingham. If they could press against those borders, or perhaps even outright seize them, that would leave Leicester standing almost entirely alone. And so here they were, a bunch of people from Tamworth going to visit Derby, long before they attracted tourists with the National Tramway Museum. But just because Athelflaed and a bunch of Mercians showed up didn't mean that Derby was ready to surrender. The Danes of Derby weren't giving up without a fight. And while we aren't given a blow-by-blow, blow, the fighting seems to have started outside the walls of the borough, but eventually, the Danes of Derby were pushed within the gates, and the fighting continued. In the melee that followed, we're told that Athelflaed lost four thanes who were, quote, dear to her, end quote. But, in the end, Athelflaed obtained the borough of Derby. And actually, the record for this event is refreshingly specific about that fact. All too often, we're reading of construction, or we've gotten vague comments about the Mercians, but here, the record clearly states that Athelflaed obtained Derby, and she also nabbed all the lands that belonged to it. But what I find most interesting are the four thanes who died. Why were they singled out for comment? 
I mean, oftentimes when we're told about casualties, we hear of eldermen or people within the various Anglo-Saxon royal dynasties. But here, we're just told about four thanes. And thanes were pretty much just mid-level nobles. They were better than a churl, but not nearly as powerful as an elderman. And so that leaves me wondering why they were considered important enough to be included, even if they weren't mentioned by name. And one clue might be the fact that they were dear to Athelflaed. Because one thing that occurs to me while thinking about this is that the personal guard of the monarchs, the Hearthwarod, were drawn from the nobility, and oftentimes they were thanes. So could this be why those casualties were specifically called out? Were these Athelflaed's personal guard, and that's why they were dear to her? I don't know. But it does make you wonder. And it makes me wonder where Athelflaed was during all this fighting. Hell, even if these dudes weren't part of her Hearthwarod, I still wonder where Athelflaed was. Because this was kind of a big deal. One of the five boroughs just fell, further isolating Leicester. And once again, Athelflaed was triumphant on the field of battle. Meanwhile, to the south, King Edward had been quite busy as well. Early in the spring, he ordered that his subjects construct a burr at Toaster. Now, Toaster was a provocative location for a burr, because building there meant that there was a West Saxon military position sitting right on the southern border of Northampton. It also expanded West Saxon control over the various waterways that flowed through the region. But Edward wasn't done. By May, he had constructed another burr at a place called Wigging Amera, which hasn't been conclusively identified yet. Some scholars I've read believe that it was at Newport in Essex, and that would have meant that Edward was capitalizing upon the seizure of Bedford by pushing further into East Anglian lands. However, I've also read scholars who believe that Wigging Amera should be placed at Linslade in Bedfordshire, and a burr there would allow the West Saxons to control movement on the River Ouzel, and it would also reinforce the West Saxon position against the five boroughs. Unfortunately, we don't know where it was for sure, but wherever it was, early in the year, King Edward was fortifying his position against the Danes along some part of his border. And then, shortly after Darby fell to the army of Athelflaed, the Danes marshaled an army and struck back. The Chronicle tells us that an army, quote, from Northampton and Leicester and north of these places broke the peace, end quote. And we'll ignore the cheek of how the Chronicle says that it was the Danes that broke the peace, even though Athelflaed had just grabbed Darby. But what I'm wondering about is who the people from, quote, north of these places, end quote, were. I mean, Northumbria had largely been knocked out of the fighting, and Darby had already fallen. So are we talking about the borough of Nottingham? I mean, they certainly would have cause to fight, since their neighbor was just seized, and they could be next if things went bad. But... Whoever it was, we're seeing a massive combined army that streamed out of the boroughs and headed south, right at the newly constructed burr at Toaster. And on first glance, that's a bit of an odd decision. Darby was one of the core boroughs, and it had just fallen to the Mercians. So why not march on Darby and relieve the town and then reestablish the full five boroughs? I don't know. I mean, maybe Athelflaed was still there and she was simply too much of a threat to directly confront. Or maybe it was assumed that if Mercia was focusing on Derby, then the southern regions would be left relatively undefended. Or maybe it was political 
and Leicester was trying to maintain its grip on Northampton. And so marching on Toaster was a bit of a concession, since Toaster was certainly a serious threat to their borders, since it was only about five miles from central Northampton. I don't really know. But whatever led to the combined army to target Toaster, this move seems to have taken Wessex and Mercia entirely by surprise. As the Danes marched upon the brand new Burr, Athelflaed and the army of Mercia was nowhere to be seen. Similarly, King Edward and the army of Wessex were absent. And this lack of a large army in the field played right into the hands of the Danes. The Burr was isolated. And since it was so close to enemy lands, without any support in the field, it was vulnerable. The army of Leicester, Northampton, and the North resolved that they could take the Burr by storming it. And doing so would mean that they would suddenly have a brand new fortress, helpfully provided to them by King Edward. But they underestimated the power of the Burgle system. The fact that there wasn't a large army in the field wasn't as much of a problem as it might first appear, because the Anglo-Saxon kingdoms weren't entirely reliant on warbands and armies anymore. Simply because Athelflaed and Edward were otherwise engaged didn't mean that Toaster was undefended. They had standing defenses that were manned by people from the surrounding region. And so when the Danes marched upon Toaster, they found a fortified position that was ready for war. But despite the fact they were dug in, that didn't dissuade the Danes. Leicester's combined army rushed at Toaster. And the Chronicle tells us that, quote, the people who were inside defended it. I don't know precisely who the people inside were, but you can imagine that members of the local Ferd, supported by anyone nearby who had the ability and inclination, were desperately fighting to hold the walls, while still other people inside were probably barricading the gates and seeking to reinforce any weak points in the walls. The scene along the defenses would have been chaotic, with locals firing any arrows they might have into the mass of Danes that approached, and then, when the arrows ran out, flinging whatever they could over the edge. When the Danes reached the walls, the defenders were probably chucking hot liquid on anyone down below. Maybe they were even weaponizing bees like the people of Chester had done. Anything to hold back this marauding army that had come to their walls. It would have been savage and exhausting. And the fighting had started early in the day and wasn't showing any sign of letting up. Again and again, the combined army assaulted the walls. But the defenses were holding, and the people within the walls were able to fend off the attacks. However, they must have been wondering how long that would last. One stroke of bad luck, one breach in the walls, and it would be all over for them. But the fighting continued. And I suspect that part of what kept the people within Toaster motivated was the fact that they knew something that the army of Leicester didn't. Help was on the way. Burrs didn't stand alone. It was only a matter of time before a relief force from the nearby Burrs and Shires would come to their defense. And sometime towards the end of the day, after who knows how many casualties were lost on both sides, that relief force finally arrived on the horizon. For Leicester, what should have been a quick assault had turned into a nasty siege with no clear path to victory. And now it had just become a battle on multiple fronts. If they faced the oncoming reinforcements, their flank would be exposed to Toaster. If they pressed on with Toaster, then they could be outflanked by the reinforcements, 
The situation was looking dire. And making matters worse, I doubt they could be sure that these reinforcements were the only warbands on the way. What if more were coming? What if the king's army got word of this attack? What if Athelflaed was marching? This wasn't going to work, and only one option remained for the Danes. They fled. And so Toaster, that thorn in the side of Northampton, remained. But the Danes weren't done. If Toaster couldn't be taken, other targets would have to do. So rather than fleeing the handful of miles back to Northampton, the combined army charged south, and they moved at night, using the cover of darkness to hide their travels. And this allowed them to make it about 25 or so miles into West Saxon Mercian territory, to the region between Aylesbury and Burnwood Forest. And there, they struck the farming villages. The locals were caught completely unaware as the army of Leicester fell upon them. We're told that they enslaved, quote, no small number of men, end quote, and took a great deal of cattle. A raid like this would have been devastating for the region, but quite profitable for the army. However, I suspect that profit wasn't their ultimate goal. Instead, I get the sense that this was something a bit more coordinated than that, and that their goal was far more than just seizing Toaster or capturing some slaves near Oxford. Specifically, I think that this was a multi-pronged attack aimed at pushing back against the recent advances made by Athelflaed and Edward. And I say that because we're told that at the same time that this combined army from Leicester was fighting to the west and to the south of Bedford, the army of Huntingdon abandoned their fortress and joined up with the army of East Anglia. Right now, some of you might be saying, finally, I've been wondering what East Anglia was up to. And they have been curiously silent. I mean, Wessex has been pushing into their territory for years, but we really haven't heard much from them since the disastrous alliance that they formed with Athelwald all those years earlier. But apparently, losing large portions of their lands in Essex was enough to bring East Anglia back into the fight. And so now, they were marching along with the warriors of Huntingdon, and they were seeking a forward base of operations. See, Huntingdon was far too removed from the front lines to be useful they needed something a little bit closer to the Mercian and West Saxon lands. Because, in the words of the Chronicle, they wanted to, quote, reach more of the land with strife and hostility, end quote. They came to raid and seize lands. And so, they marched about 13 miles to the south, to Tempsford. And Tempsford was well-positioned, because critically, it was located on the east side of the recently conquered town of Bedford. And with that little detail, suddenly the March on Toaster and the corresponding March on Tempsford start to look a little bit more like a combined operation focusing on regaining lost lands. Because Toaster wasn't just on the border of Northampton, it was also blocking the way to Buckingham, which had only recently been lost to the Anglo-Saxons. So based on the reported troop movements, it seems to me like East Anglia and parts of the five boroughs were working together to retake Bedford and Buckingham, and they were doing it through the same tactics that Athelflaed and Edward were using. They were grabbing up surrounding lands and isolating the main target before making a final push. And if this was planned in advance, they might not have had enough time to adjust for what had happened to Darby. It's possible that Darby just had to wait because they were already committed to retaking Bedford and Buckingham. 
And that could explain why Lester was off fighting with a new Burr and then raising hell in the south rather than marching north. They might have been trying to stretch the defenses of Wessex so that East Anglia could stream into Bedford without much resistance. Personally, that's my guess for what they had in mind. But before the Danes could launch their attack, they needed a hard point that they could use for resupply and for a point of retreat just in case. So an outpost needed to be established at Tempsford. And that would require a huge amount of labor if they wanted it done quickly. And it must have been quite the construction site, because looking at the timeline in the Chronicle, this thing was thrown up remarkably fast. We're still in early summer, and already the East Anglian Combined Army had its own brand new fortress that would serve as their launching pad for the next phase of this war. The walls were complete, and plenty of campaigning season was left in the air. And so while Leicester and Northampton were raising hell in the south, the gates of Tempsford opened, and the combined army of Huntingdon and East Anglia marched forth. They were headed west. Whatever it took, Bedford would once again be ruled by the Danes. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast.gmail.com. We're also on Twitter. You can find us at British Podcast, and we have a lot of other communities, and you can join all of them by going to the upper right-hand corner of thebritishhistorypodcast.com. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.